0: Live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Budd. Only on 640 Toronto.
1: Hey there, and welcome to Road to Recovery. This is Yona Bud, your host this evening. And thank you so much for joining us. We know that you have other choices, and you choose us on the dial, and hopefully you stay there. So I'm here tonight with Corey and Natasha, and we've got... A lot to talk about, um, some personal stuff here, kind of out of the gate, um, but uh, it's a really cool show, I think, with lots of interesting things to share, and hopefully you can uh, join us in our conversation and in our discussion. That's how we do it here. It's a kind of an interactive experience, and how you do that is 416-870-6400. That's the number you dial when you want to play with me, and you want to call and share information, ask questions, or just, you know punch in uh you know a quick uh, how you doing guys just let us all know that you're doing okay and that we're doing okay and yeah anything we just want to hear from you make sure that you're out there paying attention triple eight two two five eight two five five if you don't have you're not in our area four one six you're able to do that from outside of the area and uh, yeah anybody who wants to text if you don't want to call six four seven four eight eight zero zero eight six. Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but the last couple of Saturday nights we've been running uh, Best of Yonabad, Best of uh, Road to Recovery, uh, because uh, my mom passed away, and uh, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about how to do this show and come out and share, because I think it's important as, as we have our relationship, and our relationship grows, and you and me that, you know, you that are listening and me that's hosting. And I think it's important that we share and that um, I'm transparent and talk about my life as much as I want to hear how your life is going. So uh, if you've lost anybody in the last couple of years and um, you want to talk about it, you want to share, you want to offer condolences, whatever, we want to hear from you. 416-870-6400. So here's the deal. Let's go back a bit. Um, first of all, you got to bear in mind, I have, well, let's give you some backstory here. Let me try to get through this without being too emotional. Um, My mom would have been 95 the next couple of weeks, and my father should soon be 96, uh, God willing. So I have elderly parents. I'm very fortunate to have had elderly parents um, for a very long time. And my dad years ago, and my mom, but my dad primarily years ago, uh, made me promise. I was the, I seem to be the, my wife and I are the sort of primary kids involved in, in helping. I mean, I do have three brothers that uh, are involved, but um, my wife and I seem to be primary. And anyway, he pulled a, pulled me aside as well as my wife, Pumpkin, and said, look, I, I, I don't ever want to be in a hospital to pass. I don't want your mother in a hospital to pass. We're never going to go to a long-term care facility. Like, whatever happens, we'd have, we need, you know, this has to happen at home. Okay, Dad, you know, if that's what you want, that's what we'll do. So um, fortunately, we were able to, you know, plan for that, going into it, both financially and in terms of resources. Anyway, years pass. They're doing great. My mom's okay. You know, last 10 years or so maybe uh not quite as sharp as she used to be memory not quite as good as it used to be but certainly good enough to make phone calls on Fridays she'd uh, call uh, all the people on her list my brothers her, her brothers sister uh people in her life that were close to her she'd wish everybody uh you know a good sabbath for friday night that's when we're jewish that's when we celebrate our sabbath and you know she was very big into that uh into friday nights and and those kind of big dinners <laughs> excuse me so she would make those phone calls up until, you know, very recently. Anyway, um, my mom and dad about, I don't know, maybe three and a half months ago, maybe four months ago, uh, no, I'd say three and a half months ago, both uh, contracted uh, COVID. They tested positive for COVID-19. Um, and neither one had any symptoms. They were asymptomatic. As a matter of fact, my father, after a couple of days in, you know, lockdown, uh, and, you know, he still drives, he goes, you know, he works in a, uh, in a community facility. He's there six days a week, signing checks and meeting people. And, you know, he gets all dressed with a shirt and tie and it just looks amazing. And off he goes to work, so to speak. Right. Um, anyway, uh, we're all kind of, you know, together and, 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 you know, doing what we need to do and. Anyway, she he wants to go to work. Like he's, you know, not feeling anything wrong with him. He's fine. My mother says there's nothing wrong with me. This is all nonsense. It's a bunch of garbage. I feel great. Well, what happened apparently is from the when she contracted COVID, it affected her dementia, uh which, you know, she was getting more and more uh, dementia kind of symptoms uh as she got older and she's certainly much less active than my father. So, anyway, um that um COVID uh, Situation, please. Um, when this, 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 that COVID th- thing's sort of, um, um, what did I say? Exa- I've lost my words here. Exasperated her, her dementia and like tenfold, hundredfold. You know, suddenly she doesn't know who I am. She doesn't know who she is. She's not sure who my, my mother is, who my wife is. And, you know, you can, you can figure where we go from there, right? Anyway, so, uh, we're at a point now where, um, my mom is not doing well. Um, she's getting to the point where. Uh, it's likely that she's not going to be able to, um, you know, she's not going to get past the, you know, the, the lack of ability to swallow and, and, and chew and drink and all that. Uh, but they, both my father and my mother agreed that, um, they had an opportunity that they, 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 they chose to, uh, have a do not resuscitate. So if anything was to happen, they weren't looking for, you know, wires and tubes and stuff, uh, just, you know, to go as naturally and comfortably as possible. So here we are. My mother is getting worse and worse and worse. We're now moving, you know, I, I'm really moving way ahead here. We're now moving um, a hospital bed into the living room. Uh, the look on her face when we did that was probably the most devastating look I saw in the entire experience with her uh, during her passing. She knew that if she got into that bed that she likely wasn't getting out. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Anyway, I got to get through this. So, because this is not about the sadness of me losing my mom, it's about the miracles and the great things I saw during the experience of watching her pass and after during, you know, Shiva, which for us is for Jewish people that are are observant of that, you know, it's seven days of, you know, grieving and sitting with family and friends who visit and share stories. I mean, so there was so many, so many miraculous, positive stories. Anyway, my mother realized that uh it was coming to an end. She was coming to an end and she fought like a dog, like tooth and nail uh to not let go. And there was, you know, there was a period of time where she couldn't swallow anymore. She couldn't um she obviously couldn't eat. Um so we're now down to like the last 6 or 7 uh days of her life and you know, she just kept having times of of being lucid and looking at us and looking at me and holding my hand and trying to utter words. And she was absolutely connected. And the reason I'm sharing this whole story, and there's more to share when we come back from break as well. The reason I'm sharing this whole story is because I was, and my family was, exceptionally fortunate to be by my mother's side when she passed, with my father beside her as well. And Caregivers and doctors we will get to that when we come back from break. There's like the story is like re- incredible. You need to hear the the, the the miracles and incredible options that we have in this city for people that want to pass at home that are in palliative care. It, it, the stories are unbelievable. I promise I'm going to share them with you. But I'm telling you that being with my mom and then looking at all the stories and all the history of people who weren't able to be by their loved one's sides when they passed, whether it was long-term care with a hospital setting during during the pandemic's worst time of lockdowns. So this show is kind of dedicated to those families that didn't have that opportunity, that didn't have the experience to be by the side of their loved one. I want to hear from you. 416-870-6400 or 888-225-8255. So my mother's down to like the last, you know, number of days. Uh, she's holding on and holding on. We're playing all kinds of, you know, spiritual music in the background. She used to love, um, you know, cantorial concerts, which are, you know, the men or women in a synagogue that sing this, sing the tunes, sing the prayers. They're called a, they're called a cantor or a chazen, if you understand those words. And she loved those those cantorial concerts so when they were playing in the background constantly over and over and over again, we had rabbis and, and and people from our community come and say blessings for her and, and, and speak with her and hold her hand and be a part of her life. Uh, you know, some of the, some of the most prominent, uh, spiritual leaders in my community. I mean, we're, we're by my mother's side, you know, daily, um, remarkable how people just reached out and, and came to do what they thought they needed to do to benefit my mother. And she hung on tooth and nail, squeezing my hand right down to the last minute. But I'll tell you, I figured out what it was. She was holding on and holding on. I just said, "Mummy, it's time to go. It's all right. You can go off to, to the next place. It's, it smells beautiful there. It smells like Sabbath all the time. The word that we use is Shabbos. So it smells like Shabbos all the time. You know, everybody gets together. They all eat together. You'll see your sisters and brothers-in-law and mom and dad who are there waiting for you. And she she knew what I was talking about. When we come back from break, though, I want to tell you about the miracle, what happened and how it eventually helped her let go and what that unleashed for all of us. So please join me. We'll be right back here in a minute. Yona Budd, 640 Toronto.
0: You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto.
1: Okay there, welcome back. Thank you for joining me. This is Yoni here on Road to Recovery at uh, 640 Toronto. We thank you and appreciate you joining us. So if you're just join- joining in right now, we're talking about, I'm sharing the story actually of uh, the loss of my mom over the last uh, week or so. She passed away on March the 11th and um, kind of leading up to where we are right now in the story. So my mom was hanging on, ninety almost 95-year-old mother, for those that are joining us, um, hanging on um, just, you know, just with sheer grit, hadn't eaten or drank anything in almost a week. The palliative care doctors, who, by the way, there's an organization, I mean, I guess there's many, but there's an organization called the Tammy Latner uh, Center uh, in Toronto here. I think it's part of Mount Sinai Hospital or Toronto General. I'm not sure. I apologize if I'm getting it wrong. These people, these people, you know, I don't want to do a, 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 a Don Cherry. Those people, but these people... Are miraculous. There are these are doctors and palliative care nurses and support people that come to your home if you're fortunate enough to be in a position to be able to you know be cared for at home. Not every person with every uh, issue or disease. See, my mother wasn't sick. It was only the dementia that kind of exasperated her to the point where she couldn't you know talk or or swallow or chew, and that's kind of what led to the end. But she wasn't sick. She thank God, thankfully wasn't. I don't think she spent two weeks in the hospital her entire life. Other than having, you know, four boys, which, you know, that, that unto itself, I'm sure was, was remarkable. But anyway, she, she, um, she was doing just hanging in, just kind of hanging in. The doctors were coming and saying, you know, Yona, she's, you know, really, I don't know what to say. She could go any minute, any minute, any minute. So I have I have three brothers. My youngest brother and I are probably uh, the most in touch. And my two elder brothers um, have busy lives and lives, you know, their own children, grandchildren and so on. We don't we don't seem to see each other as much as we used to. Um, and my mother was, you know, when she was well and kind of more independent, we would have Friday night dinners or any kind of religious holidays uh, with her. And by her, she would make the dinner, or we would make the dinner with her in tow uh, as she got older. Uh, so we would all get together as family, you know, all my brothers and their kids, and you know, be, and whoever had grandchildren, and so on. It was it, it was a real, you know, wonderful event. But you know, over time, we all get busy. and you know, I get busy, my brothers get busy, everybody's doing their thing. We didn't get together as often as a family. So it had been forever, really, that my mom got to see my brothers and I together. I mean, just together. So I said to my youngest brother, I said, you know, you really got to call our old, our two older brothers by, I gave my name. I said, you got to call them and, you know, say, I don't think mommy's going to go anywhere until she sees us together. And, you know, she's holding onto my hand and you can see her eyes flickering every once in a while. So my, to try to coordinate that was a bit of uh, an issue. My, you know, there was timing issues for one of my brothers was, not able to get there right away. Anyway, so we it, this was on a Thursday just before she died. She, this was on the day before she died on the Thursday. And anyway, we made it for Friday morning um, that we'd get together at, at, at her house at uh, 1030 and, uh, and all say our goodbyes together. And she's hanging on Thursday night, and, and, you know, I figured she'd go through the night, and I was hopeful that she'd wait until the morning. Sure enough tough as nails, hung it, hang on. She was actually starting to get cold and turn blue, but had a pulse and, and, and her heart was, was still working. Um, my brothers walked in. Um, we all got a chance to hold her hand. We all got a chance to tell her we were there. We all got a chance to say our goodbyes together. My brothers had to leave. It was a very sorrowful time for, for them. Uh, my youngest brother and I were left behind. Uh, my mother was holding my hand, my wife's hand, my brother's hand, my father's hand, really right to, right down to the end. The story of the way my father cared for her uh, and kissed her and wiped her face and made her feel beautiful and called her gorgeous and told her he loved her. I mean, that's the guy I want to be when I grow up. Remarkable. My brothers left within the hour my mother passed away, quietly, peacefully. One big breath, out it was gone, and off she went. And I am convinced that she needed to see the four of us together. I am convinced that she wasn't going to go anywhere until she knew all of us were going to be okay. I'm sorry. Anyway, so what I want to talk about is I want to talk about the caregivers. I want to talk about the remarkable people that were involved in my mother's life. I want to talk about the doctors. I want to talk about these caregivers known as PSWs, the majority of which come from Asian countries, the Philippines for the most part. These are wonderful, wonderful human beings. Yeah, they get paid it's a job, but to watch them care for my mother and my father and the and the and the and the and the the, the empathy and the love and the care and the and, and the the respect and dignity that they provided her with was over overpowering. This is a story about the remarkableness and the gifts that we have at the end of life. I mean, come on. She was almost 95. One would say, you know, that's a long life, you know, long lived life. She's, you know, you're fortunate to have had her. I know, but I still miss her right now. doesn't make it go away. But what I saw in the people, what I saw in the following days after she passed, preparing for for the burial, you know, in the Jewish faith, we bury our dead as quickly as possible. So she passed away on the afternoon before the Sabbath, which, by the way, according to some of our scripture, that's left for kings and queens. Only, only royalty passed before the Sabbath, on the eve of the Sabbath. She passed like a queen. Everything I, t- all the lines, all the dots that I add up, add up to great life, great ending. And even for me, which is, you know, kind of selfish, no no guilt. I had a great relationship with my mom. We talked all the time. She was my everything, my, my go-to for everything you know i'd phone her and you know I, I was a troubled kid growing up so she had all that to deal with and i'd phone her and say hey mommy," she'd say what's wrong i'd say nothing let me give you some good news but you know watching the people around her my watching the people around my dad after her passing you know my dad was concerned that there wouldn't be that many people in the funeral home um and you know and perhaps we should just do it by the graveside and You know, we decided, no, let's just do it in the funeral home. And, you know, it's going to be cold outside. Let's do it Anyway, over 200 people showed up. I mean, people that friends of mine, I haven't seen in years. Friends of my brothers that I'm sure they hadn't seen in years. Friends of my family, my parents that I'm sure they hadn't seen in years. And then the Shiva period the 7 days of mourning after where people came to my mother's house my father's house to to, to share stories and to, and to and to be there to to comfort us and people providing food you know more food than you can imagine day after day for the entire time and 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 rabbis and and people showing up to make sure we had the right a number of people to 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 say the prayers that were necessary daily for her it was remarkable It was the sign of of human nature at its very best. But what comes to my heart, what comes to my mind when I hear about this and when I talk about this with others is how fortunate we are, how fortunate we were to be able to spend that kind of time with her, to be able to be there by her side. Because for so many, that wasn't an option. For so many during the pandemic, they didn't have a chance to see the miraculous things going on around the passing of their loved ones, if in fact those took place, and I'm sure they did. I know for a fact that there's nurses and doctors and, and emergency room techs and people in the hospitals that did everything they could to help those that had to pass without family do so with dignity and, and, and with respect and as, as comfortable as possible. But not being there for that last minute. I mean, I was so concerned. I was working from the parking lot of my mother's building for several days up until leading up to her passing, because I didn't want to miss the moment where she said goodbye for that last time. So I'd do my video calls and see my patients and do whatever I was doing from the dashboard of my car. And eating from sandwiches out of a out of a lunchbox and so on. Because I didn't want to miss it. If something was happening, I wanted to be able to just run right inside and be there for her, not drive five or ten minutes, which is all we live away from my mom and dad. But watching the support for my dad and watching the people around us uh, be there for us, the community, people I haven't seen in the community. I had friends show up who were, who were grieving the loss of their own families, their own moms and dads, um, who took the time to come and share with us and be with us. It was a remarkable outpouring of love and affection. So I want to just wish my mama goodbye on behalf of all of you. I'm sure these wishes are the same. Uh, But I want you to know that I feel for and mourn for and hurt for those who didn't have the same experience to watch these miraculous things happen, these miracles, these incredible signs of human goodness. And that's what this is about, human goodness. I love you, my friends. I'll see you shortly. We'll be back from break. We'll do some more of this. Yonabad, 640, Toronto.
0: Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto.
1: And welcome back. This is Yona Bud here on Road to Recovery. Thank you for joining us. I'm in the studio with Natasha and Corey, and uh, we're talking a little bit uh, this, this, this evening about grief and loss. Uh, if you didn't, uh, if you're just tuning in, I just shared the story of the loss of my mom recently, last week or so. Um, and, um, you know, really touched on and want to touch on uh, in more depth the whole concept of of grieving when you don't have the opportunity to actually be with the person who's passed and you know what it's not just the covet thing it's it can be you know people live in different parts of the world uh first you know many people that i know had a difficult time during the pandemic getting back to certain countries where their their elderly folks were were you know were not well or, or those in their family were not well and you know what uh, you know part of it is you get to a certain age i mean i'm in my my um uh, I, I'm I'm at the age I don't my, I don't want to my wife doesn't like when I give away my age but anyway I'm at the age where you know people are passing away you know elderly uh, parents aunts uncles you know those that we knew growing up as as family friends you know they're in their 90s some of them some of them in their hundreds these days like it's remarkable how long many people are living but when you get to the point where people are passing and you're not able to be a part of it. It becomes much more difficult, I think, to grieve. And in the U.K., um, they have marked something, uh, which is the, this past Wednesday, which marks the second anniversary of the first COVID lockdown. It's spearheaded by the end-of-life charity called Marie Curie, um, and it's a day to support the people who have been bereaved since the start of the pandemic as well as remember the lives of those who had died. So Mr. Swan is the fellow's name. He joins the likes of Prime Minister Boris John- Johnson. Opposition leaders, um, Scotland's First Minister, First Minister of Wales, um, who all pledged to support the event. Mr. Johnson said those lost to COVID will never be out of our hearts and minds, and today we reflect as a nation. So it's a time for those people to really reflect, um, and it, it's incredibly um incredibly diff- difficult. I'm going to see if I can get, um, Corey, who is, uh, our producer. I know he had to deal with this. Um, if he's on the air, Corey, are you able to join in here? I'm not sure that he can, uh, but maybe he will. He'll let me know when he can. I, I, I think his story, uh, we're going to see if Corey can join us as a quote unquote caller. Um, we'll get Natasha to uh, link him in and then we can share a story with him. But John K- Johnson goes on to say that the national day of reflection is a chance to come together um, and um, mourn of our collective support and sympathies to all's grieving. It's also a chance to thank everyone who cared for us throughout. I saw for how firsthand the heroic efforts of NHS staff in in the, the, um, the hospital staff in the UK and pay tribute to them, grief counselors, charity workers, friends and family. As we pause to remember those that we've lost. Um, Corey, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Um, uh, This is, I'm talking to uh, Corey, who is my producer. Um, I know you had a loss during the pandemic. And um, if you don't mind, maybe you could share. Yeah.
2: um, So in December of 2020, um, it was actually the first year that I couldn't, Go home for Christmas. Uh, my family's all from Newfoundland, so I was very devastated about that. But December twenty third, just a few days before uh, Christmas, my grandfather was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer.
1: Oh boy, that's awful. It
2: was really tough on the family, um, and it did not take long. I think it only took a span of a few weeks before he actually started to get worse. Um, I was very unfortunate that I could not due to the pandemic and travel restrictions, make my way to Newfoundland to actually be with the family. So it was a few months of this. And, um, how did you, how did
1: you, how did you sort of cope with the, I guess the, the fear and the burning desire at the same time of wanting to be there, but not being able to. Um,
2: funnily enough, and I'm not, I'm not particularly religious by any means. However, I did take the time to listen to a lot of gospel music. My grandfather uh, was a pastor. He served very, very well in his church community, um, a devout Christian through and through, so I took the time to listen to a lot of gospel music and find some way of connection. It was tough. I, I am- was it, definitely crying a lot.
1: So crying is a good thing. It's amazing, though. Isn't it that, you know, we, for those that are not, quote unquote, spiritually connected or connected to a church or a synagogue or any formal kind of, you know, prayer group or anything. It's amazing what happens when people are getting close to passing or passing and suddenly they, you know, they just have a desire, you know, to just connect in some way. Um, Did that give you comfort?
2: It did. Um, There were some, some tracks that I had saved through Spotify that I kind of had on repeat for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, And there was one moment where he, he started to become very uh, vegetative, was not speaking. Um, he couldn't even open his eyes. And so what my parents did was while they were at the hospital next to him, because they were spending the night. Um, they video called me wow. and had me speak to him through the phone. He couldn't respond to me, but... When I did speak to him, I could see that his body kind of, you know, sprung a little bit. So yep. he recognized and understood that I was there. And I made sure I, I did my due diligence. I found some um, chapters and verses from the Bible. I read them aloud to him. And they were all related to loss and grief. And wow. I told him he was, he was absolutely okay to let go.
1: So... What would have been different for you, do you think, if you were actually by his bedside?
2: Honestly, I don't know if I have the uh, the, the emotional capacity to um, to experience that in person quite yet. I don't feel like I have the emotional maturity to overcome that. Um,
1: so so it actually worked out, I mean, I won't say it in this, I guess there's the only one who would say yeah, it, but it, act, it I know what worked you mean. out kind of it, favorably for you uh, in terms of being able to so, still say goodbye without having to go through the horrible panic and stuff that you might have had it been in person.
2: Yeah, it was really difficult and he did pass um, mid-April. I took probably took about 9 or 10 days off of work um, right. leading up to and afterwards and um, I basically just attended the virtual funeral remotely from home. And if uh, if my roommate were here, he'd be able to corroborate that I was sobbing, just absolutely sobbing.
1: Well, I appreciate you sharing with us. And um, I, w- I hope you find comfort in the memories of your grandfather. And it sounds like uh, he instilled a lot of remarkably good things in you. Uh, and, you know, just going back to our, Story here real quick. This National Day of Reflection in the UK, I think, is a great idea. Um, I think it gives people a chance to grieve. I think grieving in numbers, uh, Corey, I think grieving, you know, in numbers um, with those around you that are meaningful and are caring and and, and loving, um, I think that's just all about you know, how you get past this. But anyway, when we come back from break, um, and I'm sure there's so many stories like Corey's, we'd love to hear from you. 416-870-6400. But when we come back, we want to talk about how COVID's changed, you know, how we live and how we die. Um, But not just that, but how we grieve. And I think it's opened our eyes to a whole bunch of things. So we're going to share that when we come back. Yona Bud 640 Toronto addiction is a serious issue and we take it seriously
0: this is Road to recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto
2: how do people typically grieve if there is such a thing as typically grieving
3: well that's a really important question to realize there is no typical grief where uh, our loved ones are unique to us our relationships are unique so no one grieves alike and uh, many times when we encounter the same loss, someone dies in our family, we think, of course, we're all going to grieve alike. But the reality is, we don't. And uh, part of the the work is to tend to your own grief and let everyone else tend to theirs. And it's
1: a a hard thing for people to do. Hey there, welcome back. This is Yona. I mean, is there really a is there really a way to grieve? A standard way to grieve? I mean, do we all do it the same? No. You know, some people celebrate, some people go off into a, into a, a bit of, a, of a, um, a cocoon and kind of hide from the world. Some people you know, are highly depressive. Some people deal with all kinds of guilt and regret. You know, everyone grieves differently. And it's interesting about grief is, you know, how much is grief is really about the person who passed versus about us? you know i found myself often thinking about situations well you know well my mom was wasn't well and then of course after her passing about things i i wanted to do for her but they made me feel good and the conflict of kind of being stuck between is this selfless or not? And, I'm, and and truly understanding, you know, what the heck does selfless really mean? Anyway, it, COVID's changed now how we live and how we die, how we grieve according to this story here, and, and just in fact, right? Uh, so last week marked the second anniversary, as you know, of the World Health Organization's declaration of the pandemic. And in uh, those two years over, this is a, a, a story that takes place in, um, in Australia from the Australian perspective. In the last two years, 5,500 Australians have died from COVID and approximately 300,000 Australians have lost their lives uh, from other things in total. So the necessary public health protections have affected people's access to dying loved ones, limited their participation in, you know, rituals like funerals and reduced the ability through social distancing that, you know, would have allowed people to get together more often and see loved ones prior to passing. And more than half reporting problematic, more than half of the people in the, in, in Australia that we're talking about in this particular study have been reporting problematic grief symptoms. So Australia has seen a relatively low number of COVID infections and deaths, particularly prior to recent months. So understanding the impact of the COVID deaths for them on the people left behind. Meant looking overseas. So what they did is, a member of the Pandemic Grief Project, uh, the the writer partnered with, partnered with some overseas researchers to survey people in the U.S. So now the study is coming um, into the U.S., into North America, who had a close person, close personal um, relation die uh, from COVID, and they found that fifty seven percent of those surveyed reported some level of problematic grief symptoms. So, such as a change in identity, feelings of meaning meaninglessness, uh, wishing to die themselves to a degree of uh, where psychological therapy would be avi- advised. So people not over fifty seven percent problematic grief symptoms. Now, normal people, normal no, no, I shouldn't say normal people, people under quote unquote normal circumstances prior to a pandemic or something such as. Um, you know, have difficult times grieving. Not everybody grieves the same as we know. For some people, it's highly uh, emotional, highly psychologically impacting, um, can affect the ability to eat, sleep, uh, have any joy, um, and so on. So it becomes a very um, different and difficult period for, for everyone. It depends on who they are right? Um, it also found that 70% of the sample coped with their loss using drugs or alcohol for at least days, if not weeks, during the loss period. So this, you know, <laughs> do you want to get high and you want to get drunk when your life is upside down and you just lost somebody who's really important to you? Probably um, you want to escape and find some way to numb out the pain and the the distress that we feel yeah probably is it a solution that actually does anything that help you cope with your loss not really you know maybe that first shot of vodka or that you know uh first you know half a glass of wine or something kind of gets you through it you know sort of you know prior to making a speech at the funeral doing a doing a eulogy i mean i did a eulogy it was it was took me nine tries to write it and finally delivered it in the way my mother would have wanted me to. And it was most difficult thing I ever had to write. But anyway, um, back to the study. So we found that most participants reported high levels of symptoms, generalized anxiety about 70%, depression about 75%, problematic grief, not sure how they identified that at 66%, and impaired functioning in care areas such as work, leisure, and family relationships. Uh, you know, for me, I found it very difficult to just go back to work, you know, and just, you know, and it was, listen, I'm a therapist, right? So I'm sitting and listening to people's complaints and and problems and issues. And, you know, for a couple of days there, I just had to shut my practice down for a while because honestly, as horrible as it sounds, I'm being honest with all of you because you're my friends and I love you. We're family. Like I didn't want to hear it. (laughs) I just didn't want to, I know it sounds awful. I just didn't want to hear everyone's stuff. I was dealing with my own stuff, Right. And, you know, the, the, the fact that, you know, someone's got a kid who's not cleaning his room and smokes too much weed and is disobedient, you know, for that moment wasn't such a big deal to me. You know, I just lost my mom. I was dealing with grief and loss and, you know, anything anybody said seemed to be kind of mundane and trite as it related to what's going on in my life. But that was me being selfish. And that's part of the grieving process is that you're allowed to be selfish. You're allowed to take the time you need to get through it. It's, it, there's no rush. There's no timetable. Interesting in Judaism, in, 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 in the practice that I, that I follow, you know, there's seven days of what's called Shiva, which is a mourning period. Uh, for a man who, for, for a spouse, it, the, 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 grieving process by definition in the, in the Old Testament is, is a 30 day period. Uh, so God forbid you lose a child, you lose a life, a wife or a husband or, you know, the grieving period according to Jewish law is only 30 days. But if you lose a parent, It's eleven months. It's eleven months of going to synagogue, saying prayers. If that's if again, if you're inclined to do it, if that's who you are, that's who I chose to be for my mother, and for me. And that's the kind of guy I was, you know, prior to her passing. So now there's eleven months of 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 restrictions. I'm not supposed to go to parties. I'm not supposed to be anywhere where there's loud music and people dancing. I'm not supposed to really be engaged in in anything joyful, although I do have a son getting married. I got a couple of, you know, positive relationship type things going on in people's lives that I want to celebrate. And, you know, I'll be there, but celebrating in a different kind of way. Right. Right. It's that eleven months is enough time, as I now know it, to get the grief out of you, so to speak. But not everybody does that. Some people, it's you know, it's a week, it's a month. Some people grieve forever. You know, I, I referred to when I was growing up. You could tell. I grew up in an area that was primarily um, uh, Italian um, immigrants, um, for uh, for the most part. And you know, when you saw you know a young mother, all dressed in black. Um, for more than a couple of days, now it's fashionable. Then it was a sign of, of, of loss. And some of these women I remember were young in their forties, early fifties and never ever went on to have any kind of life. I, I don't think that's healthy, a healthy, um, method either, but who am I to say? So we compare those who believe losing someone prior to COVID versus someone who uh, lost someone after COVID, and the foundings found that the team did a, des- designed a national study to answer the question. We aim to understand the grief experiences, supports, needs of the people in Australia who have been bereaved from any cause during the COVID pandemic. And so far, two thousand bereaved Australians have partic- participated. Excuse me, in the research and uh, shared their experiences of grieving and so on. And the early results suggest that people who have lost a loved one during the pandemic or something similar to a pandemic are experiencing more grief, higher anxiety, higher depression than would have been expected prior to the pandemic. So the study's open for recruitment. They're still, uh, they're still recruiting people now towards the end of March. This is an active survey, by the way. This is not, uh, closed by any stretch of the imagination and very current. The team intends to develop a national bereavement action plan in the coming months to address uh, grief and loss in Australia based on what they're learning from their study. The international findings coupled with the preliminary Australian findings are strong indicators that as the pandemic, as a pandemic continues, we're likely to see sustained struggles with grief. So, Um, bereaved people commonly seek support for their grief, right? You know, if you're attached to a to a synagogue or to a church or a mosque or any kind of religious organization, there's typically an opportunity to connect with a with a clergy of some sort. Someone in some organizations, in some uh, uh, churches and uh, religious uh, structures, there are people in the community that just focus on uh, grief and loss. You know, they're usually elders. Uh, they usually have great experiences. Uh, but people are, you know, we're now finding in the based on the Australian study that almost a third reported uh, didn't receive the support they would have liked to during the pandemic, um, and it really created a huge gap for individuals that are now trying to figure out how to get their heads around around the grieving. So, you know, I, I can only imagine based on my experience, uh, what it would be like for someone to do this alone. I mean, I have a, a pretty big family and uh lots of lots of community and friends and so on, thankfully. Um, and, you know, they were there to rally and be supportive. But for those that don't have anybody, you know, I remember years ago a friend of mine in, in, in our community called to to put ten men together to to say prayers and to bury uh someone we knew from the community who had nobody. His parents were long gone, didn't have any brothers or sisters, no, no aunts and uncles that we knew of. And he passed away. He was, um, I don't know. You might remember him. He was Ralph. Um, he was the guy at the, at all the Blue Jay games and, um, uh, all the football games that ran up and down the, 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 out the stairs, you know, handing out, uh, give, selling, uh, popcorn and, 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 and programs for years and years and years and years. He eventually passed away and, and no one was even there to collect his body. Anyway, long story short, you know, it, it, it he would have, passed away in, a, in, in, in the corner would have buried him, you know, kind of, you know, uh, una- um, kind of anonymously. And, you know, it would have been a horrible experience, I'm sure, for him. But not everybody gets that opportunity. And for those of us that walk away from the, from loss with grief and, and guilt, like guilt is the worst one, things you wish you could have done. Guess what, my friends? You can't go backwards. Don't beat yourself up for something you can't do, you can't fix, you can't change. You understand me? So, You know, loss is about forgiveness. Loss is about letting go. Loss is about sharing remarkable moments and remembering remarkable moments. Loss, I believe, is about understanding that things do come to an end. And we can do that in a healthy way. We don't have to be all hung up on on horrible things that could have, would have, should have. Listen, even in living relationships, we often say to each other, boy, I wish I could have said this, I wish I could have said that. I wish I could have done this, I wish I could have done. Would have, could have, should have. So, dear friends, as I close this segment in the first the hour today, I want you to understand something. It's never too late to say to somebody, I love you, I miss you, I want to be with you, even if they're not with us in person. Just look up to the sky or out to the lake or look at a star somewhere or a a bird in a tree, some way that you feel connected to your lost person, and they'll hear you. I'm pretty sure of that. We'll be right back after a long break here. This is Jonah Budd, 640 Toronto.
0: You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud only on 640 Toronto. Sometimes we underestimate how
1: much distress and grief kids are actually experiencing because they can be playing, having fun, looking like they're doing just fine, but internally really feeling very heartbroken and having a hard time. Hey, welcome back. This is Jonah Budd. Thank you for joining us on The Road to Recovery. This is our second hour. If you want to participate, give us a call here, 416-870-6400 or 888-225-8255. You can text me here at 647-488-0086. Or if you want to give me a shout-through the week or reach out by email, it's roadtorecovery at 640toronto.com. Or you can reach me anytime at 877-777-5808. And I'd be pleased to talk to you throughout the week. I do get phone calls. I do get messages, and I do return all of them uh, as soon as I'm able to. You know, if you listen to the clip on the on the outset coming out, and by the way, there's uh, just for those that aren't paying attention to the news that you might be watching, um, there was a, a fire at the at the uh, Scotia Arena, and uh, the Raptors game was stalled. Now they're continuing the game without fans. Fans were ejected from the facility uh, because of a fire issue, and uh, seems to, everybody seems to be fine. The Raptors are now playing and finishing the game without fans, so that's up-to-date info. You know, there are ways to talk to your children about mental health, and talking with your kid about emotional topics such as their own mental health can be very uncomfortable for parents. And it, this can be due to the stigma involved in having the discussion. So it seems much easier to talk about other medical problems with kids like food allergies or asthma, even, you know, even, uh, you know, youth diabetes. There's typically a lot more information about those kinds of symptoms. Um, and it's much easier to talk to your kids about things they can physically feel. Much easier to diagnose as well, right, with medical tests and, you know, there's really no fault attached to to those types of diseases. Too frequently, though, people blame mental health challenges on the person experiencing them by saying they aren't trying hard enough or they're doing something wrong, which is... can absolutely wrong. That's it's, it's not the right response. Um, people who are suffering and, and deal with mental health issues, such as myself, you know, when we're out of control, it's because we're out of control. It's not because we choose to be out of control. Now, of course, there's things we can do to keep our our our, our mental health in check. But when you're talking to your kid, you gotta explain to them that there's nothing they've done that makes it their fault. Sometimes parents have a difficult time having this conversation with kids because they feel maybe they've done something. So it's guilt that kind of keeps them from having the right conversation. And if I'm telling, if there's parents out there listening to me right now, 416-870, we want to hear from you, 6400, 416 870 We'd like to hear from you if you're experiencing something like this or had issues when you were a kid and needed your parents to talk to you, you know, uh, chime in. We'd like to hear from you. But if you're having an open conversation is a great way to decrease the stigma. So it can be tough to know how to start the conversation. It's less. Let's consider some helpful ways to talk with your kids. Let's look at them together. So there's a book called Meet Little Mo- Meet Little Monster. It's a coloring and activity book, and it helps foster a dialogue between your kids and you, um, in in a way that helps children provide. It's a tool for them for helping express and explore their feelings in a fun and creative and empowering way meet the little monster meet little monsters a mental health coloring and activity book available for a download at no cost in both english and spanish it's created by nami washington it's a organization that's uh, a deal with the uh, youth mental health uh, and it's a response to both pandemic and non-pandemic issues when kids were suddenly cut off from their friends uh, coaches club leaders and schools counselors and so on um so here's the here's the way to deal with it. Make an analogy to a medical problem is one of the suggestions here, right? What does that mean? It means that um, children often hear about their medical problems. They understand that they have asthma, for example, their lungs and airways tighten up. and So when they know how that works. They know what wheezing sounds like. Similarly, you can let your child know that when their mental health concerns like anti- anxiety, depression, ADD, ADHD, OCD, among others, are also physical conditions that start with the brain, right? So give them, for example, you explain to them the brain controls feelings and thoughts and behavior, like central headquarters of the body. Sometimes the brain gets knocked off balance. Things cause us to be off balance. It's the way to explain this to your children. Like other medical problems, they can learn to manage this with some form of treatment, which can include medications, behavioral support, stress reduction, relaxation. My grandchildren brought me out of their hundreds they have hundreds of stress-release toys. They, 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 I asked my daughter-in-law, what are you stressed about? She says, well, not really anything. I just like the toys. Uh, but there are stress-release toys. I'm holding two of them right now. They're just balloons yeah. with rice in them that you know, haven't been blown up, and you can just play around with them in your hands. Uh, they don't make a noise, and they're really handy. Um, so children understand they can understand that if you give them the opportunity that mental health issues better if they have a, an explanation. So if you walked across, for example, if you walked across the street and a car was about, a car was about to hit you, you would jump out of the way, feel scared, have a racing feeling in your heart, feel dizzy maybe, maybe you're breathing too hot, too fast. All of this is a normal flight or fight response to real threat or danger. So a panic attack can include all of those same physicals, physical feelings, excuse me, and emotional reactions as if you were about to be hit by a car. So many times panic attacks happen in some normal, just normal situations, such as just going to school or riding in the car, going up in an elevator or in other settings that aren't really dangerous, but you feel, the kids feel that they're in a dangerous situation. Listen to them and validate their experiences because there's often a stigma attached to mental health. Children can feel ashamed, perhaps, to talk about their worries, their obsessions, their compulsions, their impulsivity any other behavioral problems. So talk with them about it. Listen to them with curiosity and emphasize with them, empathize what's going on with them. Understand what's going on in their life. Be sure that their kids know that this is not their fault. Many children with mental health conditions can feel that their condition is their fault or that somehow it's an unchangeable feature of their personality. It's just just who I am. I'm just an angry kid, someone once told me. Stigma and misinformation often reinforce these feelings. So you can see, you can help kids through this mental health condition, these mental health conditions and, and explain to them that it's a sign that something's wrong with them as a person, not, not something's wrong with them inside their, their, their chemistry, their medical condition, but not wrong with them as a person. So what we do is we emphasize their strengths so they don't for, they don't, you know, find all, spend all their time focusing on the things that aren't so good about them. And I deal with parents and kids all the time about this. Let's focus on the wins, not the losses. Focus on the things that make us feel good about us, not the things that make us feel bad. Have frequent conversations with your kids. Many health conditions are considered um, intermittent, so symptoms can come and go throughout life, obviously, depending on the age of the child and levels of stress and a number of other factors. It helps to have conversations about your own emotions, thoughts and behaviors that are part of your life so that your kid can understand that you as an adult that they think are superhuman have issues too. And here's how you deal with them. Let your kids ask lots of questions. Children will have all sorts of questions about their symptoms and treatment. So be open. Give them the information about the ways therapy and medications can help with other people, other young people that deal with these kinds of stories. Find stories of famous athletes or famous, you know, famous movie stars and people that your kids might attach themselves to who are also struggling with mental health issues. And let them see that, you know, quote unquote, normal people and even, you know, superstars have issues. Athletes, there's so much information out there about athletes who are you know, dealing with their own mental health as it relates to their, their uh, performance in, in the Olympics, in, in professional sports, and so on. It's a time to let them know that they're not alone. They're not the only ones out there suffering with these kinds of things. And as a matter of fact, being that you're a child, it makes it so much easier for us to learn and teach and develop ways to help these kids overcome a lot of these conditions, so they can grow up to be healthy, successful, and thriving as adults. I mean, it's just you know, it, now is the time to to plant the seed, so to speak. Another another key point is include the family. A deal mental health conditions should not be a secret. Your child may feel more secure if their siblings, grandparents, others in the family knew about it. If it's a, if it's kind of a, a, a you know a nasty secret, it makes them feel like there's something they should hide. Discuss self care and prevention with your children. Mental health conditions are complex interactions between your biology, psychology, and environmental issues. Teach your kid about practicing self-care, healthy diet, exercising regularly, meditating, learning how to, you know, how to chill and relax and listen to soft music, getting enough sleep. Um, They're all, these are all instrumental things in helping everyone, not just kids, get through difficult times with mental health. By the way, don't be afraid to ask your kids if they feel suicidal. That seems to be the no-no that parents never want to really uh, talk to. We have the highest rate of suicide, suicidal ideation amongst youth ever in Canada right now. And in recent years, the, the death rates of suicide and suicidal thinking have increased highly in young people. So many parents and caregivers are very weary of asking kids about it. They, they're afraid that if they start the conversation, they're going to put some thought in the child's mind about, hmm, maybe I could kill myself. That's not true. It's just not how that happens. There's no connection. We haven't found any strat, any, any studies or any research that says if you talk to a kid about suicidal ideations, they then develop them. It doesn't work like that. So talking to your child about mental health conditions is not an easy thing to do. However, you're more capable than you know of having a dialogue, especially today when there's so many people faced with mental health issues and dealing with, uh, loss and, and, and crisis and being, you know, uh, secluded and, and put in and left away from their friends and lack of socialization, it's now a good time to talk to them because everyone's experienced it, and it's easy. Kids won't feel like they're alone, and they're the only ones out there. When we come back from uh, break, we have a really interesting story to talk about how fashion, how clothes can have an impact on a person's mental health in a very good way, and we have a guest that's going to join us to talk about that. This is Yonah Budd, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue and we take it seriously.
0: This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto.
2: Members of the community often face financial hurdles um,
1: and they're not able to pay for the fashion that they want. To go to two experts in fashion to find out what they like and then have a wardrobe created for free is a huge huge boon. Hey there, welcome back. This is Jonah Bud. You are on the road to recovery. If you want to play with us tonight 416 416- or 888-225-8255. Just before we get to the story here, it's now 1019. Do you know where your children are, your loved ones, your pets, or your seniors? you know where everybody is? If not, you probably should get a handle on them, make sure that everybody's where they need to be and that they're safe. And if you have a real problem, you're really concerned, call 911 immediately and let them know. If you need to reach out to us, do so at 416-870-6400 and our staff will connect you and I together and I'll do what I can to help you uh, in the moment. Anyway, Samuel Bramer is the co-founder of Transforming Style. He's our guest uh, on hold here. Uh, when he was in high school, he used fashion to try to hide his sexuality. He said that at the time, he didn't want his style to express too much He avoided bright, bold colors and patterns. It wasn't really, he says, until after high school when I came out to my family and friends and I was really on this journey of accepting myself and finding myself that I started to express myself through fashion. Now he's 33 years old from Winnipeg. He's helping others within the LGBTQ community find their individual style through his newly formed not-for-profit transforming style. It's open to anybody in their community, in that community, facing socioeconomic barriers. Uh, he goes on to say in the nonprofit's process, which he calls a style journey, uh, when a client requests a private consultation, the team learns more about the person, who they are, and how they want a fashion to reflect that. The virtual consultor followed up with an in-person session to try clothes close on. We want folks to be able to be true to themselves and feel uh that they're um being heard comfortable and confident with who they are previously worked that he worked as a stylist in several Canadian cities um what we like to say is that we're breaking down barriers building confidence and so on the transforming uh style uh, their opportunity is to uh make sure that people get connected ultimately to some form of care Um, there's a team of about 10 people, including beauty consultants and so on, that are part of this uh, process. And um, it's interesting because, you know, when you're feeling a little down and depressed, you know, one of the most amazing things is that um, when you feel good about wearing a new suit or new dress or new piece of clothing, it really does um, boost you, make you feel better about who you are. Um, Anyway, Samuel, thank you for joining us tonight.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. And uh, first of all, kudos on the great work you're doing, brother. And uh, um, really, our our strength and blessings go out to you to make sure that you and your organization continue to do the great work. So uh, give me an idea kind of how this, I mean, I, I read the article and, you know, it kind of is is a, a vanilla version of, I'm sure, what really led you here. Um Give me an idea of a, sort of how you came to the conclusion that, because it's not just about clothes, right? It's about clothes and then ultimately getting people the help that they need. How did you come to terms with this or come up with this idea and how did you get started?
3: Yeah, well, um, I really believe that everyone has the right to express their true selves. And, you know, I wanted to create a self-safe and welcoming place where anyone on their 2SLGBTQIA plus style journey um, can find the resources and support that they really need um, to celebrate their true self and do this also through style.
1: Right. And so give me an idea how it kind of started. I mean, did you just, you know, you sort of help one person kind of, you know, quietly on your own and it's kind of led to something like, how did this go from a great idea to an actually functioning organization that's doing very well right now?
3: Yeah. So I had, you know, the idea to do this and with colleagues and friends, I was styling folks on the side and really helping them on the style journey. And we realized, very quickly that there was a need for this um, within Canada. So we came up with transforming style and really um, it's been amazing since we started and we're receiving tons of requests from all over Canada and even from the United States.
1: Now where you like, okay, so you're getting requests from some, so so give me an idea of what that request looks like. Um, Samuel, give me an idea of, of what that, you know, what does that request look like? So I, I'm I'm part of, you know, I'm someone in your community um, or in, in that community, in your community, in that community that needs to reach out. Tell me how that how that goes.
3: Yeah. So people are reaching out to us via email, on social media, through our website, and they're really excited at the opportunity to really have experts in the fashion industry to really um, assist them and guide them expressing their true selves through fashion. So we have folks who are in the process of transitioning or someone who's just come to terms with their sexuality, and it's really such a big part of who we are. So they're really looking to us for that expert advice to really guide them, um, because our individuality is what really makes us beautiful. And um, to express oneself through fashion really does this, and really to be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you something else is really the greatest accomplishment.
1: Right, and, and by the way I don't think this is just something that you have to be You know, part of a gay community to to Enjoy the benefit from, I, I, I'm sort of hoping I could get your number later and make sure That, you know, <laughs> what I'm wearing works for me I'm constantly, you know, I was, I'm constantly kind of In, you know, in, in stretchy lululemons If it doesn't stretch, I don't wear it But, right. um, you know, I, I, I'm i not sure I'm giving off the right image for a man my age But so, uh, but it's not really It's not just really a gay thing, right? I mean, it's anybody Who really needs to find their Find their footing, and fashion seems to be you know you see these young kids in school that are dressed all in black and quote unquote goth clothing and so on you know there many of them are I see in my practice you know it's just a way to stand out a way to be different a way to kind of connect um now mm-hmm. in, in the community that you're that that you're serving and I understand you built this business with your husband uh Keith and and, and is this something that the two of you do full time now or do either one of you have like a A day job, so to speak.
3: Yeah. So now we are um, doing this full time. We have our um, flagship location in Winnipeg. We just opened up a second location in Calgary with plans to open up in Toronto and Saskatoon um, in the early summer.
1: Cool. So So when you say open up, you're talking about physical facilities where ultimately people go and try on the clothes.
3: Right. Yeah. It would be a physical location.
1: Very cool. Cool. Um. how is it that you guys, I mean, this is kind of an aside and maybe too personal, but you can tell me. So how, how is it that you're able to work together, live together, and be together? Do you find that some days it's a little too much?
3: <laughs> no, we work really well together, and we have our separate uh, workspaces in the home. So things are going, uh, going well so far, um, and we're just really excited to really be expanding this throughout the country and really being able to serve as many folks as possible.
1: So are you finding that with a lot of the people that you talk to, especially perhaps the younger ones, that it's a function of not, you know, in in the, in the, in the outset of your, of the article, in the beginning of the article talks about how you, you know, you avoided certain kinds of clothes and certain kinds of colors, certain kinds of patterns. Um, When someone quote unquote comes out, is that, you know, is it your feeling that that's the time to wear the, the kinds of colors, the kind of patterns, the kind of uh, designs and, and and trends that, you know, that that they're comfortable without fear of somebody going, oh, wow, you know, he he's dressed in such bright colors. He looks so gay or she's dressed in such masculine colors. She looks so dikey like, you know, those kinds of horrible expressions that they must hear from people. How does somebody get to a point where they're able to dress so that the inside and the outside match without the fear of repercussion?
3: Mm -hmm. Well, I think that that's why we go beyond the style journey and we also offer support. So um, lots of times we have folks coming to us who are interested in the style portion of it, but really need that extra support um, with our therapists and peer support workers to really, you know, come to terms with their true self and be comfortable with who they are. And sometimes that work um, goes beyond the style journey and you need a therapist or peer support worker to help you figure everything out. So, you know, while our style is a statement and it says, you know, how we communicate to the world who we are. And for many of us and many individuals in the queer community, it's actually a matter of being seen. So, you know, we Uh, believe that everyone has the right to be seen, heard and understood. And by cultivating this personal style, it's so important because it not only tells the world who you are, but it 's a journey to finding yourself as well and to better understand and love yourself
1: yeah, because i think I think for some for many people you know um, I think you need for all of us, I think frankly, whether you 're in the queer community or not I, I think for all of us it it takes a certain kind of confidence or certain kind of, of uh mindset to be able to wear that new hairstyle, to be able to wear that bright that bright color or those, you know, funky pants or those, you know, you know, brilliant design. Um, you know, to be able to wear that out is not just a function of whether it looks nice on it's whether you can actually connect on the inside to feel good wearing it so you're not walking around you know feeling like everyone's staring at you and if they are that's okay too that's that's a big job right so you talk mm-hmm. a lot about mental health supports and therapists and and peer support give me an idea what those people you know are like where they come from their skill sets and so on
3: Yeah, so we have um, a team made up of 100% volunteers. So everyone is volunteering their time graciously. And we have professional therapists and peer support workers. And we're honestly receiving as many requests for styling as we offer support. Um, You know, it started back when I styled my first client and she required support beyond the style journey. And what I found was that there's some great organizations out there who offer mental health support, but there is such a long wait to get in for yeah. support, especially yeah. given COVID. So folks, folks are waiting up to a year to get into support, and I just thought this was unacceptable. So we offer support that is immediate, and there is no time frame or time limit on how long you access the support. So we have folks who signed up for therapy sessions in September and they're still seeing someone once a week. And I think that this is vital to, um, you know, addressing mental health and not having time limits on how long you can access support.
1: Yeah. You're preaching to the converted brother to trust me. There's, you know, these, these limited frames. just get, you know, I can tell as a tell you as a therapist for four over four decades, you know, it Mm -hmm. takes sometimes a month just to start getting to the point where you can talk about real stuff. Um, quick question on the side here for a second. Did, Did, did you, or do you see a therapist in, in, in this process anywhere along the way for yourself?
3: Yeah. So, um, back, um, back in the day I did, uh, speak to someone and, um, It was really uh, a wonderful experience, and that's why I thought, you know, this is um, extremely important. It, you know, really helped me um, come to terms with myself and, you know, build that confidence that I was missing. And um, that's why I really wanted to be able to offer this from personal experience and from all the requests that we're receiving, um, because it truly is, you know, a barrier that many people within the community face and we wanted to be able to offer this support and it is a hundred percent cost-free.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, I'm uh, just, uh, so you get me live and make this commitment on air. I'm more than willing and quite interested actually in uh, volunteering to maybe run a group or two. Uh, it'll be hard for me to do individual therapy, but if uh, you have any interest, I'd be glad to run a couple of uh, virtual groups and see if I can Use my skills to help your folks along the way, or anybody that's in the in the team. So write me down, put me down, contact me later, and we'll, well figure out how to make that work. Because I wanna, I'd like uh, to be a part of this. Um, so let's get back to the therapist though for a second. Are we yeah. talking about so we're we talking about social workers, um, yeah. uh, psychotherapists, addiction counselors? Give me an idea who's kind of makes up that team.
3: Yeah, so our team is, um, growing rapidly. So we, um, are going to be updating our website soon with many new team members and they really range. We have social workers, psychotherapists, addiction counselors. We really have, you know, specialists from all, all facets and we're really addressing, you know, any issues that come up with these folks, um, as they reach out to us. Um, so whether they need, you know, full on mental health services, just want someone to talk to or a listening ear. And also, a big thing that we found is navigating resources. Yeah. So, we have resource navigators joining our team because some folks who face barriers or socioeconomic barriers need assistance navigating resources within their communities and within their cities and don't really know where to start. So, that's what we're finding a big need for as well.
1: Well, I can tell you, uh, I I can say young man because you're clearly much younger than me, Uh, both you and... uh your husband are doing, uh, remarkable work. I sure, I sure as uh, all of your therapists and all of your volunteers. Um, I'm excited to hear more. We'd like to check in with you. When you found your, when you find yourself getting ready to launch in Toronto, let us know. So maybe we can do a little bit of a kickoff for you here on the, on air. Um, so please reach out, be part of our, our lives. Uh, we'd like to be part of yours uh, going forward. I'm talking to Samuel Brammer. He's the co-founder of Transforming Style. Uh, you can check them out, I guess, online, right? Uh, Samuel, just. F- look look up transforming style correct um is that the website
3: transformingstyle.ca and we're on um, instagram and facebook at transforming style
1: well wish you all the best of luck i'm excited to uh to hear back from you and uh, maybe get a chance to meet someday so you can look at what i'm wearing and tell me how i need to fix it uh (laughs) samuel brenner co-founder of transforming style great guest and uh just one of the one of the good people out there doing what needs to be done to make our world a better place thanks for joining us we'll have you back on again when we come back from break we're going to talk about why the gen less society well gen z society are less worried about fraud uh they're losing a fortune to all kinds of online stuff and you'd think these young people that are computer savvy would know better we're going to talk about that as soon as we get back yonabud 640 toronto
0: Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Budd, only on 640 Toronto.
1: And welcome back. This is Yoni here on the Road to Recovery. We'd like to hear from you. Lose any money? Anytime, uh, any anytime recently here, do you lose any money to any kind of stock scams or phone scams or text scams or you know one of those scams where I'm really stuck? I'm you know where they hijack somebody else's email account or Facebook account or something, and they send a message that I'm stuck in some country and I don't have access to my wallet. Could you send me a hundred dollars for this or for that? Um, those are all scams, right? And you know, it's what's interesting is. According to this article from March the 5th, uh, it was uh, Leah Gollop from the Canadian Press to put the uh, article together. Um, it says that Gen, Gen Z are less worried about fraud, but the survey finds uh, precautions uh, can be rather simple, uh, but they're not seem to be taking advantage of them. You would think that young people would be more scam friendly in terms of understanding or, or more scam aware, I suppose is a better term. Um, you know, that things just aren't, if they they look too good to be true, Guess what? They're too good to be true. I mean, I can tell you that. I'm not a general Zer, but um uh, hasn't taken me that long to figure out that a thief is a thief is a thief. The amount of money lost to fraud and scams skyrocketed in 2021, yet the Canadians in gen- Generation Z are less concerned uh, than their older counterparts. The article goes on to say they also take fewer preventative fraud measures, screening phone calls, closely reviewing credit card and bank statements, uh, changing online passwords. I mean, I know people that have had the same password for 20 years. Um, Older people, older Canadians, we seem to be a little more focused on being ripped off because we seem to be targeted more for the most part, at least I thought so. So while most can- Canadians think fraud and identity theft are serious issues, those 18 to 24 say they're not very worried about it, and 75% compared with the average Canadian of 90%, right? So there's more less concern amongst the younger generation than there is amongst the older generation, it's clearly stated. There's a misconception among young people that because they're young and often more technologically savvy that they're less likely to fall for a scam. Well, according to Equifax Canada, uh, their compliance officer says, um, she's compliance officer of consumer advocacy, her name is Julie Kuzmik, and she says, I think there may be a bit of a false confidence, given that Gen Z, like other demographics, lost a substantial amount of money to fraud in 2021. A TD Bank survey, Toronto Dominion Bank survey, released earlier this month reported a similar trend. They saw 47% of Gen Z respondents that say they felt vulnerable to fraud compared to 56% of millennials responding and 52% of Canadians overall. It was to hypothesize uh, why they feel that way? Um, it would it could be that they've grown up entirely in an area of social media where the sharing of information just seems so prevalent. I mean, we you know adults are adults. I shouldn't say that they're adults as well. Um, people in my age range and in similar you know decades close to me, um, you know, we're not we don't come from a a, a a world where you just share everything online. You know, and we're I'm still skeptical where I buy things online. I buy through PayPal because that gives me some kind of security. I think. Uh, to protect me from buying things that don't exist and so on. But anyway, it it could go on to say um, that according to the vice president of fraud strategy at TD Bank, they haven't experienced fraud necessarily themselves or talk about it even enough to know who those that may have problems and may not. It's not discussed. Young people don't talk about their potential issues of being ripped off or not being ripped off. The Canadian Anti-Fraud Center reported that Canadians of all ages lost over $379 million last year to scams and frauds, which is a rise of 130% compared to 2020. So 130% increase in scams and frauds in 2021 than in 2020. And I'll tell you what, because we were shut down and everybody was home, it was a great time for scammers to reach people. You know, it's a great time for scammers to get people online, by text, by phone, by email, because people were constantly looking at their electronics right, to stay in touch with the world when they were shut down and not able to go anywhere. Approximately $26.6 of that amount that was lost was lost by young adults in the age of 18 to 35. And the number is much likely higher since fewer than 5% of fraud victims actually report. So most people that get ripped off don't tell anybody. They don't tell the police. They don't tell family. They don't tell friends. It's kind of like because they feel it's like, hello, I'm an idiot. I got ripped off. Yeah, anyway, not so much. So because young people are kind of afraid to share that kind of stuff, uh, they appear to be uh, more in line to be a victim than not. According to reports filed by um, the Canadian Fraud uh, Organization, um, young adults were more mostly affected by extortion, requests for personal financial information, and job-related fraud in 2021. In the latter case, fraudsters recruited victims via popular job listing websites for positions like Mystery Shopper, Or personal assistant, or financial agent, or debt collector, and then gave them fake payments while asking the victim to send money to a third party. When it comes to dollars lost, young people lost most to investment scams. 11.8 million, actually, followed by extortion at 4.9 million and romance scams at 3.7. Yeah, romance scams where they try to get you matched up with somebody. You just got to send some money, and the next thing you know, no one ever shows up and really takes advantage of people that are in a bad place, right? It's just. Very upsetting. Investment scams happen less frequently than other types of fraud, but they can have a large impact on the victims when they do, in fact, happen. Young people aren't alone in being affected, by the way. The CAFC reported that um, Canadians lost a combined total of $136 in investment scams in 2021, making it the most financially devastating reported scam in Canada. With investment scams, if you're not familiar with them, by the way, victims are misled into giving large sums of money and in some cases, all of their savings. Like, okay, so you you stop me right there. I got to stop right there. Who takes out all of their savings to make an investment in something where they don't know the person, they've never met the person, they can't see the person, but it just sounds so good, they can't help themselves. That's the gambler mentality in some of us. Some more than others. Where they just, in their gut, they know it's not the right thing to do, but what the hell, I'm going to take a shot at it. Right? victims are... Listen, I'll tell you something. I saw an article in the paper in the Toronto Star months and months and months ago about a famous actor who was investing with this company in in, in uh, cryptocurrency. I've always wanted to invest in cryptocurrency. I got a hold of the people that this person talked about in the article. I invested $250 thinking, well, you know what? I can afford to lose it if I do lose it, but I'm really hoping I don't. And sure enough, they had people call me and follow up with me, but nothing ever got... No trades ever got made. I lost 250 bucks. They stopped responding to my to my messages and I kind of knew going in that I likely was going to get ripped off but I did it anyway and anyway I live and learn right so these types of frauds uh, use pressure tactic, tactics to exploit fear of missing out on, a, on an opportunity. They get their victims to act quickly. They get them, you know, involved in the process immediately. They, they get them, you know, uh, invested both emotionally and psychologically. And by the time you're given all this unsolicited advice, act with a sense of skepticism. Take your time to do the research the experts say. When it comes to investment scams, they can mean verifying the, that investment companies are actually registered. See, if I would have been able to do that, I probably would have known in advance, but I was in such a hurry to try to make money on crypto that I lost my $250. bucks. do not let tact, pressure tactics force you into making decisions without a moment of pause or consideration. Young people, I remember when I was young, man, I acted very impulsively in many ways, not, not always good. So fraudsters know this. They know how to, how to, how to operate. They know how to take advantage of somebody. Um, and young people, you know, access their phones and devices constantly. So the, the level of skepticism when it comes to receiving emails or links from unfamiliar addresses, the experts say, you know, you don't want to invest in anything any sooner than you'd open a link from somebody who you don't really know. You don't want to do that either because then you end up with all kinds of uh, software problems and people hijack your computer and all kinds of crazy stuff. So in order, in, or, in addition to, not, to only opening safe emails, uh, experts advise young people to use protection software that safeguards against hacking and strong and complex passwords that differ from each account. People should be careful not to give out any personal information or un- from an unverified source. By the way, the government, Canadian government, any major bank, any proper company, any of the credit card companies, any real organization will not ask you to provide private information over a text message or by email. You know, you would get something delivered by actual mail, snail mail for the most part. Um, and you can also call back, verify who these people are and so on. You gotta be super cautious. It's important to take note that fraud can happen to any demographic, not just for younger people. And no matter what your background or educational level is, most scammers take advantage of people who don't have much money. Seniors that are really on a limited income. Uh, it's not, it's not, you know, robbing from the rich. It's robbing from the poor to give to themselves. So they continue to evolve their approach. They continue to evolve their, their tactics. So we need to continue and evolve. Um, methods of staying away from the bad guys. And there's all kinds of stuff online, all kinds of YouTube videos, all kinds of blogs and information you can find out about how to avoid um, cyber scams. And um, I suggest you look at that information before you do anything. When we come back, we're going to talk about um, domestic violence investigators now working with the Ontario Coroner's Office, see if we can put an end to this horrible trend. We'll be right back here. You're on about 640. Toronto. Welcome back to
0: road to recovery with Yona budd only on 640 Toronto.
1: And welcome back. This is Yoni here on road to recovery here at 640 Toronto. Appreciate you joining us this evening. And, um, yeah, I just want you guys to know something that I think you're the best audience ever. I really appreciate you really appreciate, pre- appreciate being a part of your lives for the couple hours that we're together. And, um, I love you guys. You're just awesome. Um, the numbers are, aren't changing. The The experts investigating Ontario's domestic violence deaths say they need a new perspective. Every time a person, mostly often women, is killed by a former or current partner in Ontario, a group of experts come together to try and figure out how this could have been prevented. Did you know that was going on? I didn't know that was going on. Anyway, the Domestic Violence Death Review Committee, it was founded in 2003, has examined over 470 deaths in part to identify the risk factors and look at the patterns that emerge repeatedly these killings. 71% of the cases had a history of domestic violence, and 67% of those involved an actual or pending separation. So the issue recommends to people and government agencies about what must change to stop the next case. So we understand now, based on the stats, that a person who's in the midst of a separation, perhaps a divorce, hugely often when it happens, when there's a custody battle, children involved, that we, we need to do a better job of preventing um, those that are involved in these situations at the family court level um, from being involved in these horrible situations. I know I know lots of patients of mine, female patients of mine, and male patients of mine for that matter, um, who have had serious issues of some form of violence with a spouse or the other as it relates to their divorce, as it relates to their separation, and often as it relates to their custody battle. Uh, you know there was a story not so long ago a couple of years ago but a, a husband and a wife they were in the middle of a bitter separation there was a child involved uh the husband showed some signs of uh, unstable mental health although was given the opportunity to spend some time with the child alone uh he knew this p- particular adult knew that he wasn't going to he was going to have supervised visits coming forward ended up taking the girl to the park in the wintertime some park here in the outside of the GTA and accidentally or, or on purpose, we don't know for sure, they both fell off a cliff and to their death. So the mother, the, the bereaved mother and ex, soon-to-be ex-wife of that person, um, you know, was clearly uh, in a situation, actually, I guess they were divorced. It was really just a, a separation or a custody situation at that time. You know, clearly showed signs of concern and worry for herself and for her child and, um uh, is now involved in a in a major uh, lawsuit, uh, but the experts are saying that their this committee's chair, his name is Prabhu Rajan. Um, he says that looking for ways to make the committee more effective, transparent, and diverse, beginning with a call for 15 new members uh, to bring this committee up to up to up to up to you know, up to snuff, so to speak. Um, he also is the chief counsel at the coroner's office. This uh, fellow, Mister Rajan, is a uh, chief counsel at the Ontario coroner's office, and the committee plans to come up with changes. And suggestions. Not sure how that works. Uh, the committee has typically been most made up of people who work in the justice system, healthcare workers, and so on. It might include more frontline workers going forward. The approach of the committee, which reviews about 25 cases a year, typically after the criminal case is completed, could also change. At a recent meeting, we had three or four cases involving gun violence. Rajan said they raised similar issues on accessibility of firearms. So some of these violent uh, domestic violences, violence. Situations inv- involve uh, weapons, guns in particular. We've heard about knives and machetes and all kinds of horrible stuff. People setting themselves and their houses on fire. Some crazy, crazy stories, right? It's just not good. It's a process that follows a two- 2019 promise from the coroner's office to overhaul their, this committee. Uh, they believe that they have the ability to provide, with, uh, provide information to avoid um, some of these deaths in the future. Uh, they'll also have to reevaluate how they share the information because uh, right now the public doesn't really get access to much of it. The committee's mandate may also expand to regularly cover cases where intimate partner violence was a factor but not necessarily the direct cause of the murder. Um, but I like the fact that they're looking at it. I like the fact that there are people committed to looking at what's happening in our world and why people are taking the lives of others, especially when it's a domestic a uh, situation and, and trying to really understand, you know, what the triggers are. You know, it's like looking back at a, at a, at a school shooting and looking at ways you could have prevented it by looking at the behaviors of those who perpetrated the crime. So it's, it's, it's a great plan. It's a great, a great idea. I'm not sure how they're funded, but I, whatever they're doing, uh, they get my vote. I think it's, it's a good plan moving forward and hopefully they will continue to do uh, the kind of work that's necessary. Listen, I want to, Get off the air here, and I want you to to do me a favor. I want all of you to do me a favor. My mother used to say something. May she rest in peace. She used to say, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. So I'd like that to be my mantra going forward. Spread nice is another one. Spread nice. Be nice. Talk to people nicely. Be kind. Do the right thing. Have people treat you the way you want to be treated and treat them the same. Be kind. And if you don't have something nice to say, just walk away. Don't say anything at all. Anyway, you're the best audience ever. I'll see you next week. This is Yonah Bud, Road to Recovery on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Have a great one.